In today's episode, I am sharing part two of The Power of Crying, When We Release, We Heal, with a particular focus on why some of us cry more than others and what drives that behavior. Let's get started. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Live Mindfully podcast, the podcast that invites us all to slow down, take a deep breath in and show up as the most mindful, wholehearted version of ourselves that we can each day. Last week, I shared part one of The Power of Crying, which means this week is part two. Last week, I focused on the physiological response of crying, how crying makes us feel and what researchers had discovered in terms of the chemical makeup of our tears and how they differed from the tears that keep our eyes lubricated or the tears that are produced when we're cutting onions, for example. This week, I want to speak about some of the research that supports why we do or do not cry. But I want to preface this episode with a disclaimer. Scientists, behavioral psychologists, psychotherapists, they don't actually know. (laughs) And I've said this before and I want to say it again. Science only takes us so far and scientific research It disproves itself again and again. So science is at this moment, when we talk about the scientific research that we're looking at, it is saying that at this moment, this is our best understanding of something. And so if what I'm saying or if what the science is presenting doesn't resonate with you, that doesn't mean you are wrong. It could just mean that science is wrong. Science is wrong all the time. So as you listen to this episode, one of the best mindful tricks we have up our sleeves here is to see how this information resonates with us and what we feel to be true for us. Because the other thing about research is that never do scientists get 100% of participants all agreeing. There are always outliers. There are always subjects who have a different experience. It is not a one-size-fits-all. In last week's episode, I shared that I don't cry very much and that it takes a lot to move me to tears. So I The research that I was doing this week I found really fascinating because I almost came to this episode thinking, well, I'm either quite strong and courageous or maybe there's something wrong with me, (laughs) which now that I've done the research and I am recording this episode, I can see that that It's a very egotistically focused way of me to have entered. And what I have discovered is maybe it's both or maybe it's neither. 
What I do know is that when I do have a good cry, I feel better. And the research says, one particular study, that the majority of participants, 60%, who were interviewed directly after crying, did not feel better. In fact, 9% said they felt worse. 30% said they did feel better. However, another study found that if participants were asked 90 minutes later, many more reported feeling better. And this is what we're going to have a lot of in this podcast or in this episode, a lot of conflicting research. (laughs) And what I find fascinating, though, about the um, latter of the research is that that ties in quite nicely with a lot of research that I have read around mindfulness and improvement in productivity and improvement in memory function, improvement in emotional regulation improvement in parenting styles, improvement in your mental wellness. This concept that when we create space, and I also want to say that this concept of creating space and reflection is mentioned throughout the yoga sutras. This is part of yoga. When we create some space between the event or the thought, when we create time to reflect, whether that be 90 minutes later or at the end of the day, when we create these pockets to actually look back, we're able to notice a difference. So cultivating a daily practice of reflection, especially after an emotional episode, might be something that helps you process those emotions helps you to address if you feel like it's a struggle to control those waterworks for you. Research which I found really fascinating and I want to add as I said before there is so much conflicting research on all sides of why we cry so this has been like trying to put three different puzzles together and make some sense of it. But research that was released in the Journal of Research in Personality in 2011 by Lauren Bilsma found that certain situations also played a role in whether we felt better, worse or remained the same. Her research, not surprising, but is fascinating, supported the notion that I have, I believe this to be true, that we are more likely to feel better if we cry alone or with only one other person who actually makes us feel better about it. So not a group of other supportive people, just one other person. I certainly know that that would be true for me. Of course, people felt worse if they were embarrassed or ashamed of their crying or if they were with an unsupportive person or if they were with two or more people, whether they were supported or not. There was also research that suggested wealthier countries where a greater freedom of expression and social resources were available had higher rates of crying, while people in poorer countries who probably have more to cry about, they don't do so. Um, And it was 
determined that that was, or it was hypothesized, I should say, that that was because of their cultural norms. And I, re- I attended a workshop last year with an incredible Kundalini teacher who was working and had been working for 15 years in a lot of Asian countries. And she would lead these retreats with invitations to people in those countries who had suffered trauma, in particular women. And she shared with us that there were these retreats that she ran. They they were quite hard in the beginning to run them because the women in these countries really struggled to even connect with their own trauma. They struggled to talk about their losses. Um, a lot of them had experienced losses in childbirth or through forced abortions and the reason that they didn't talk about it was because culturally it wasn't appropriate. They also felt like it was something that everyone experienced. So you kind of, you know, they never had spoken about it. It was almost as if it didn't happen. Everyone just moved on. And what this teacher found was that when she finally understood that, and then created a private space where these conversations could be had, these women shared each of their own experience and they were each so sad and upset at what the other had experienced and how much pain that other person must be carrying. And then they were able to recognize within themselves the pain that they were also carrying. And what I think is so incredible is that when this Kundalini teacher was able to create this space, they all had a community now of other women who understood. So we're very lucky to live in a country where crying is accepted. And the current research mostly points to crying as being a way to connect with others, to get sympathy, to get empathy. We, as I'd already mentioned previously, have research that suggests that if you do that in a group setting, it has the opposite effect. We don't feel better about it. So I think it really depends on the environment that you're in as to how you're going to feel. But I don't, it doesn't resonate with me that crying is mainly a way to connect with others because it's not a way that I use, I guess, to connect with another person. And I think the research also supports that when we're crying, we actually feel better when we do it alone or when we do it with one other person. So I think in general that crying is an opportunity for us to release. And I spoke about this in last week's podcast. We talked about all of the chemical differences between your basal tears and your emotional tears. A lot of the chemicals that exist in emotional tears are ways for the body to release stress. So we know that from like a scientific chemical point of view. Um, It makes a lot of sense to me that crying is an opportunity for us to heal parts of us that hurt when we are frustrated or when we are sad. And again, you know, see what resonates for you, but I cry far more often when I'm alone, tears of sadness, 
but I'll cry far more often in front of others when my tears are tied to tears of joy. And when I sit and think about this, I think that is largely because my go-to when I am frustrated is anger. (laughs) And there was research that supported this too. Clinical psychologist Cord Cord Benecki found that people who cried less experienced more negative aggressive feelings like rage, anger and disgust than people who cried and that resonates with me when I am sad or frustrated or really really hurt by someone's actions my go-to is anger and I think about friends and family members who might be in the same situation they would burst into tears they would sob they don't get angry And this is another reason why I believe that emotional tears first and foremost are designed to help us release built up stress and the toxins that exist in the body when we are in those moments of frustration and of sadness versus their main reason for being to connect with others. The other reason that I think this is that in order for us to even cry emotional tears, our limbic system, which is the part of the brain that regulates our emotions, has to send a message to the eyes to cry. That's not what happens when we cry basal or reflex tears. And my final thought on this and another that resonates with me is how you were raised. That'll be one of the biggest reasons as to why you cry or why you don't cry. And I don't have a lot of evidence to this next statement that I'm going to make. This is very anecdotal evidence that I am compiling. So feel free to email me at hello at lauriemore.co and share your experience. Let's see if we can compile our own evidence here. But I also think where you fell in the pecking order of your siblings also plays a role. So we do know that a range of attachment styles can exist in one family. One child, for example, usually the youngest is naturally coddled more than the rest and they can live their whole lives known as the baby of the family, whereas the eldest is expected to grow up a lot faster and often, you know, expected to care for younger siblings. And I see this a lot. This happens a lot. And I have to say, I don't agree with it. If you have a child that is less than seven to 10 years older than another child, man, they're not supposed to do your job for you. Like stop placing expectations on those child children to parent the others. So we do know that women, of course, we know this, cry more than men. No surprises there. But what Judith Kay found after looking at as much research as she could find on the subject was this. Securely attached people are more comfortable expressing emotions and cry in ways that are considered normal and healthy while those with insecure attachment styles were either easily activated with difficult to soothe tears or were less likely to cry and tried harder to inhibit their tears. So there are four kinds of attachment styles and these attachment styles are formed in your formative years, i.e. when you are an infant slash young child. So there is secure, preoccupied, dismissive, and fear avoidant. And I have a link in the show notes 
to an article that explains each of these attachment styles and it also has a quiz so you can take it. Kay's research also found that people who displayed dismissive attachment styles cried less. Um, These type of people tend to have trouble connecting with others and maintaining close relationships, while those who were preoccupied tend to cry more. And these types of people tend to be more clingy and dependent on others. The other important thing for me to say here is that it is unlikely that you will identify wholly with any one attachment style. It is more likely that you might recognize traits of each of the attachment styles in your own behavior. So don't get hooked up on that information around attachment styles and thinking, oh, well, I must be that one attachment style. That's not how it works. But I do also think that it helps our ability to reflect on the things that are happening within and especially those things that don't make us feel good or the things that cause us stress and and unhappiness. And all of this stuff that I share on this podcast, all of this stuff that I'm sharing in this very episode It is just a way of providing a little more knowledge to you that might help you to understand why you behave one way versus how another person might behave. So it's designed to be engaging content. It's designed to be helpful. It is not um, like a whole all of the information and you need to put yourself in a box But if you have behaviors within yourself that you want to change, I know within myself that I, it helps if I can understand things a little bit better. So after all of this research that I've done, for me, I'm going to start to focus more on connecting with that part of me that holds sadness and that exists, it has to live there when those feelings of anger and frustration rise. And I'm going to focus on tapping a little bit more into that space where I want to release and I want to cry because I do believe that crying helps us to release and therefore helps us to close off harmful, hurtful experiences for ourselves. So that's a little something I'm going to work on. Thank you so much for joining me today. Don't forget to check out the show links for more information. I'll be back again next week. Until then, take extra good care of yourself. Mm-hmm.